Welcome to Three Panel Contrast, the podcast where three doctors dissect two comics and stitch them together into one monstrous discourse. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Hancock. I'm interested in comics and games and currently teaching at the University of Waterloo. And this month, with an anxiety that almost amounts to agony, I collected the instruments of life around me that I might infuse a spark of being into two graphic novel adaptations of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. We have Frankenstein by Junji Ito and Disney's Frankenstein starring Donald Duck by Bruno Enna and Fabio Saloni. Joining me to pour a torrent of light into our dark world are my two co-hosts, Dr. Andrew DeMann. Hi. And Dr. Anna Papard. Hello, everybody. Anna, could you bestow animation upon lifeless matter and give us an account of Disney's Frankenstein? (laughs) I can certainly try. So the awkwardly titled Disney's Frankenstein starring Donald Duck was released in English by Dark Horse Comics in 2019. There had been an Italian uh, version before that. It's the creation of writer Bruno Ina and artist Fabio Saloni, both veterans of Italian Disney comics. It stars Donald Duck as Dr. Victor von Duckenstein, a doctor with a talent for the art of creation. Much of the comic follows the traditional Frankenstein story. We begin in the Arctic, where a ship's captain hauls aboard a half-frozen Victor von Duckenstein, who proceeds to narrate his story, starting with his childhood in Naples, through his fascination with alchemy and weird science, to university in Ingolstadt, to the creation of the creature. Here we get one of our first twists. While Victor von Duckenstein is startled by the creature rising to life, he's not horrified or disgusted the way the original Victor was. His separation from his creation is purely an accident. When he was startled by the creature, he startled the creature in turn, causing the creature to fall out of a window and disappear in confusion into the night. Then, as in the original story, we get the perspective of the creature, referred to as Growl, with a number of the usual details. He briefly finds a home with a man who is visually impaired and learns to speak and read, but eventually gets shunned and chased off, and then goes to find his creator. From this point, we veer away from the original story. Growl doesn't murder anybody. While he does hold this story's analogs of Huey, Dewey, and Louie hostage in order to convince Victor to build him some companions, it's Huey, Dewey, and Louie's idea, and they're doing it for the right reasons, because Victor has lost all passion for life and needs to get his groove back by making some more wacky creatures. There's an angry mob and a miscommunication that sends Growl to the Arctic with Victor in pursuit, but when Growl finds Victor aboard the ship, everything's resolved in a hurry. Victor built an island of wacky creatures to hang out with Growl, and the nephews miss him, and everybody just wants him to come home. So he does, along with Victor. A much happier ending than the original story, where pretty much everybody, (laughs) including Victor's love Elizabeth, meets a grisly end. In Disney's Frankenstein, Victor even gets the happily ever after with his sweetheart whom he doesn't deserve, but I digress. The other major twist is that in this story, the creature is not a product of science. He's a product of art. Victor is an artist and specifically an animator, with Growl being described as an animated being. There's a commentary here on art and cartoons and maybe the Disney Imagination Factory more specifically. I am certain we will be talking about such things today. It's a fun comic with vibrant art and a few good jokes along the way. Not quite as self-reflexive as something like the current DuckTales reboot, but it's in that general ballpark. It is not especially similar to Junji Ito's Frankenstein, which is, I'm sure, why Michael chose to pair these texts. I am looking forward to unpacking that contrast today. Thank you, Anna. Andrew, would you renew life where death has apparently devoted the body to corruption with a summary of Junji Ito's Frankenstein? 
Yes. Uh, Junji Ito is the long-adored master of horror manga, a living legend in his home country of Japan. Ito's Frankenstein, for which he won an Eisner Award in 2019, first came out in three parts, beginning in 1994, as part of the series The Horror World of Junji Ito. It went without an English translation for quite some time, but was republished in 2018 by Viz Media in English, capitalizing on a broader Western fascination with Ito's work, owing largely to the popularity of his Uzumaki story in North America. Ito's original horror creations tend to focus on low mimetic intrusions of the supernatural into otherwise normal circumstances, with a focus on the sublime impact that the supernatural has on our perceptions of reality, and the various meanings that we invest in absurd things like society, economy, and relationships when presented with truly surreal things. In this sense, Frankenstein is right in Ito's wheelhouse, so to speak, as Shelley's original work engages with many similar themes and symbols. So how does Ito do? For me personally, it's very hard to compare storytellers on account of how shockingly different the stories are, just as a consequence of moving from an epistolary text to graphic narrative. The power of the unseen looms large in Shelley's work, while Ito's iteration of the monster is visceral in a way that Shelley cannot match, providing a constant and compelling juxtaposition between eloquence and, well, viscera. Where Shelley can only capture the horrors of Victor's machinations through the polite musings of a very proper narrator, Ito's depiction of simple gore throughout Victor's journey creates a more balanced juxtaposition of the rational and the monstrous. It's genuinely shocking, pun, how much the story shifts through simple transmediation. In terms of choices, though, I would argue that Ito's Victor is significantly less sympathetic. I would argue that the Freudian sexual subtext is wholly abandoned, no bedroom reveal scene. Lastly, I would argue that the choice to alter the ending a bit is perhaps less fun than Shelley's original, remembering that we can't trust the things the homunculus says. He says he's going to destroy himself, but that's the thing about Frankenstein's monster. He says what he wants you to hear. If I sound divided on this, I am, but in the best possible way. Ito's Frankenstein provides a lot of food for thought. It's an intriguing contrast to Shelley's original novel that breathes new life into an iconic monster. Pun proudly intended. These thoughts supporting our spirits, we now pursue our undertaking with unremitting ardor. Listen closely to your audience while we bring this monster to life. Uh, I thought we could start the discussion with some general discussion of uh, the original story as well and kind of shift into adaptation from that. We have a bunch of people from the humanities here. Uh, what's your relationship to Shelley's original Frankenstein? How did you first encounter the text and what does it kind of mean to you? Uh, yeah, Frankenstein's one of my favorite books. Um as Anna has said off mic, like it's it's kind of limitless in the amount of variation and layers to it. There's a lot of different ways to approach it. Simple monster story or a complex meditation on gender standards and their impact on women. Like it's it's got a lot happening. Uh, I first encountered it as part of a, a, a period in my life where I was paying for my education by taking bets on horse races at a probably mob-owned bar in Thunder Bay. Oh my um, God. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> But uh, if anyone's familiar with horse racing, nobody bets except right at the wire, right? 
So you would always have 20 to 45 minutes of like doing nothing and then the line forms uh, and you have to get everybody through as fast as possible. So I could do a lot of reading in that time. Uh, and I, I sort of did this like weird canonical thing where I read all the classics uh, and Frankenstein was one of them. And it just, it, it profoundly affected me. I, I love this idea of this incredibly articulate monster who's an absolute liar and manipulative and violent, but is really, really good at explaining all the ways that he isn't. Um, and, and I think that's where a lot of the um, representation of Percy Bysshe Shelley uh, in, in Frankenstein really comes to life for me. Uh, so, no, as I said, this this was something that, that meant a lot to me at a young age. I, I've taught it since in, in courses and gotten great responses from the students. Um, I really like this story. And I think the fact that I have that attachment to it and I still really like Ito's version um, does, to me, speak to the quality of Ito's Frankenstein. I don't, I cannot top that, Andrew. That is an excellent story about discovering <laughs> yeah. it for the first time. I'm sure that I read it for the first time in high school, just, yeah, on my own, knowing that it was an iconic thing that I should read during that kind of reading the classics things too, that I probably did at 16 or 17. And I'm sure that I had to study it in university too, probably in a course on science fiction. You know, a lot of science fiction courses start with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein as yeah. you know, is appropriate. But yeah, it's it's impossible to capture everything that's important about this text on one podcast, let alone one question about our podcast that's about adaptations and not about the actual original text. But I mean, the implications for this book in terms of the ways that gender and sexuality relate to the entire genre of science fiction are kind of incalculable and have not been mm -hmm. fully reckoned with. I mean, it's just a topic that we can return to again and again and again in terms of that being so clearly at the center of this genre and yet continually sidelined despite the prominence of the Frankenstein story and the cultural imagination. That's always going to be my primary interest with the Frankenstein story, but I think that, as Andrew said, that's one of the central things that the story is about. I mean, it's about gender, it's about sexuality, it's about reproduction. So um, I'm sure we'll talk about those things a little bit with both of these adaptations, probably a little bit more so in the Junji Ito one than the Disney one, although I think the Disney one has some interesting, potentially, elements of that to talk about mm -hmm. as well, if only in terms of absence. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's that's my two cents on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, one of the greatest books of all time, an infinitely, <laughs> like an infinitely analyzable text that mm -hmm. you could certainly make a whole career of analyzing and never get to the bottom of everything. Yeah, or you could agreed. spend a month on Twitter. <laughs> you could. possible as, Frankenstein you iteration you can find. If yes. anybody is listening to the pod and hasn't been that. following us on Twitter, Michael has been reading so many Frankenstein adaptations and tweeting about them, and it's been very impressive. That leads very nicely into the next question. Uh, <laughs> what do you think about uh, Shelley's influence in, well, pop culture at large, we covered a little bit, but... Uh, its relevance for comics, especially superhero comics, but the comic genre, or not genre, medium as a whole. Oof, Michael. I, I could be a little abstract here, because I, I think a lot of the superhero genre in particular engages with the concept of um, um, the hubris of playing God, even mm -hmm, though yeah. there's there's this, this massive contradiction in the idea of the superhero. But like the core argument is, you know, Lex Luthor wants to make an earthquake machine. He's playing with God. So Superman, a natural agent, in theory, nemesis of God, comes down and breaks it for him and punches the crap out of him. Uh, so you have the superhero often functioning as like the, I don't want to say the God police, but, but like the, the don't play with the rules of God police. 
uh, and really enforcing that idea of the kind of hubris that we see very much engaged with um, in, in Frankenstein through Walton and Victor, respectively. I would argue we get changes, though, across the history of superhero comics. I mean, one of the things that I've talked about a lot with Marvel comics are the changes in how we conceptualize superheroes and sort of especially the origin stories and uh, of superheroes in the post-war era versus the pre-war mm-hmm. era and the wartime era mm-hmm. because i always come back to this quote from leslie fielder or well it's, it's really the thesis of his whole book on freaks that in the post-war era monsters and freaks become less an other than a secret self and you mm-hmm. see that a lot with a lot of the marvel superheroes in terms of they have that hubris thing that you're talking about andrew but it's internalized right bruce banner is transformed by his own bomb into the hulk and you know that's not a new story either it's a jekyll and hyde story right but at the same mm-hmm. time he is the mad scientist and the hero in the same figure right the monster is a secret self not another the comics get around this by having other others <laughs> to oppose the superheroes mm-hmm. right they're not <laughs> radically remaking how we think about good and evil they're introducing a new degree of relativity i would argue though yeah which they're is moving the of, line yeah 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 which is part of uh, I don't like using words like complexity, but sometimes we do think about the Marvel <laughs> superheroes as more emotionally complex in certain ways. And that's part of where that emotional complexity comes from, you know, graying good and evil, if not quite, not quite deconstructing it. So, yeah, I don't know. I was thinking about the contrast between, and this is maybe a rando example, but between the Golden Age Human Torch and the Silver Age Human mm-hmm. Torch. So mm-hmm. the Golden Age Human Torch, for those who aren't aware, and when we talk about the Golden Age, this is like the, the one created during the wartime era. A little bit before he is very much a frankenstein's monster created by a mad scientist not that mad of a scientist but you know a scientist exper- experimenting with weird science he creates this artificial man who's an android and he malfunctions he bursts into flame upon contact with air and terrifies everybody so he gets locked underground in a big concrete box and of course he gets out then he terrorizes people a little bit more before quickly learning to control his powers and just becoming a police officer kind of gets less interesting interesting after that but that initial story is very much a frankenstein's monster story so you already have a little bit of that secret self idea going on there because the monster becomes a hero but in the silver age human torch story it's a little bit even more so you know johnny storm goes on the rocket that transforms him you know reed richard's rocket that they know isn't quite safe but they have to go and beat the commies and also impress each other and do whatever. I mean, it's a story about hubris, right? I mean, Ben Grimm is transformed into the thing as a manifestation of the cost of that hubris, right? So Johnny Storm is transformed into a monster, but he is not a tragic monster at all. He loves being a monster. And it relates to his teenagerness, which also relates back to that concept that I introduced from Fiedler about monsters being secret selves. Johnny Storm is pretty square, but he's still a teenager in the 1960s. And in that sense, he is a representative of the counterculture. And in the counterculture, being a monster is desirable. Being a freak is desirable. And his reaction to his freakery, I think, relates to that. And it relates to the ways that the Frankenstein story in general changes in the American context, I think. I mean, the Universal Studios Frankenstein film like had such a big effect on how we think about the creature and has a huge effect on this Disney version of Frankenstein that we have here in terms of the creature being much more sympathetic, but he's sympathetic in part by being less smart and manipulative too. So there's just, there's so many things. I mean, one of the things that makes the Frankenstein story so interesting to talk about is because there are so many retellings of it and it becomes almost like a superhero mythology where we can trace different cultural ideals based on 
which aspects of the story are prominent in which places and times and why, right? So that's a very long-winded answer. But yes, I agree that the Frankenstein story is essential to superhero comics. It's essential to the structuring myths of superhero comics and seeing how they handle bodily transformation and scientists and superhuman bodies, because that's what the Frankenstein body is effectively, right? Mm -hmm. Or the Frankenstein's Mm -hmm. monster body is effectively, is yeah, I mean, foundational to that genre as it's foundational to so much science fiction. And it's interesting that both Marvel and DC, in both Marvel and DC, the monster is a character that exists in yeah. that universe and goes on adventures. But yeah, I've been doing a lot of rereading of the Frankenstein comics and it's further, both Marvel and DC have stories. The first stories they have that where the monster appears, there's... a uh, in both Marvel and DC, there's a rewriting so that uh, in D- the DC case, uh, Frankenstein's monster turns out to be just this guy who was kind of tall that worked for the scientist. And in the Marvel version, he turns out to be a robot made by aliens that uh, went uh, wrong. My kind of read of it is that the universal version of the character held such sway for so long that they felt that there was this sense yeah. like you can't do Frankenstein's monster as just another creature until around the eighties where uh, Marvel introduces the uh, does its own push towards horror series. And a little later uh, DC does the creature commandos and so forth. And that kind of brings them back into circulation uh, superhero wise. Well, yeah, and there's so much to talk about that we don't really have time to talk about here about what's bound up in the Universal Studios version, you know, making the monster not articulate, but then making him more identifiable and sympathetic through that articulation. I mean, various critics have related that to various things. I mean, people have even related it to kind of like slavery and abolition and sort of ideals about who's worthy of citizenship, you know, which types of others are worthy of citizenship Mm -hmm. and that type of thing. But that's a whole tangent that we don't have really is not as relevant (laughs) to the text that we're looking at today. But again, just really, really interesting to see which sort of aspects of that story are articulated in which years. Yeah, let's shift then to the texts of today. Uh, In previous episodes, we've looked at a number of comics that tell stories with characters from other media. Listeners can go back to our episodes on characters from Star Wars, the Flintstones, G.I. Joe, and we've looked at uh, podcasts and how they adapt the comic book medium. But I think this is our first case in the podcast of looking at texts that specifically adapt an existing story from another medium, which is interesting because of how frequently these sort of adaptations, whether it's books or films or games, are a part of the comic book industry. Let's let's start with the text at hand. Uh, What do you think of these works as adaptations in terms of how it captures the spirit of the original text and offers an interesting permutation on it. There's a lot to talk about in the Disney one in terms of those things that I already brought up briefly about making the monster quite lovable. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's hard to hate on that take. Who doesn't want a lovable monster? It's everybody's favorite thing, right? (laughs) As the title of a much lauded graphic novel says, right? But um, 
but yeah, I don't. The thing that I that I sort of liked about it, and we can get in kind of into kind of the, the specifics, but. I did like how just effort it was with the tragic romanticism of the male characters, you know, <laughs> instead of just falling into being so tortured by their tragic romantic impulses and creative impulses that they can't function. It does just become, no, we actually figured it out and we're all just going to go home and be a <laughs> huge happy family. And that's a little bit satisfying. I'm reading too much of a critique of masculinity into that, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But on a level, I did find that fascinating. That's my opening well, salvo. Yeah, it's really interesting with that one how, I mean, it kind of deviates from the original immediately with the focus mm-hmm. on creativity over science. But mm-hmm. I feel like the real first reversal of the original is the moment where the monster is actually like, looks at himself in the water and is like, no, actually I look great. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a monster. I'm awesome. And it's, it's very cute. It yeah. Is. And the bolts are handy earplugs. I thought that was a nice touch too. <laughs> um, for me, I think one of the interesting differences between these two texts that we're studying, I would argue, and Anna might disagree and that's fine, um, that the Disney Frankenstein is incredibly dependent upon foreknowledge of Shelley's novel. Mm. Like, like it's an intertext it is really yeah. clearly riffing on it it's building um tension based on your expectations and then subverting them um whereas i think feel like ito's book is trying to operate completely in isolation which it might be able to get away with being in a different country and originally in a different language uh and just you know this is a story that you've maybe never ever heard of before i know frankenstein the universal monster was very popular in japan um, but I don't know to what extent Shelley is read in Japan. Um, and, and it feels very um, um, interdependent in that respect, a sort of stripped down bare bones version of the Frankenstein story that, that really mines it for its visual elements more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the thing that I was interested in, in the Ito one, I mean, Ito's art is always amazing. And that's absolutely the draw of the text. But whether the two of you had thoughts about how the more direct adaptation elements of it, you know, just telling the Frankenstein story from the original text and, you know, pretty much quoting directly from the book for sort of long stretches, right? And I had mixed feelings about the effectiveness of that because Mm -hmm. I want to be like, Ito should focus on what he's good at and just give us this purely visual story because those are definitely the parts of it that I found the most affecting, predictably, given who we're talking about. But at the same time, something about the staidness and the coldness of those more direct adaptation sections made the horrific elements very affecting. And I wondered if you oh, felt that tension as well, because, again, I mean, part of me was like, oh, this wasn't a good way to do this. It's too much of a direct adaptation. It's not speaking as much the comic book form as it could and not making the best, you know, its creator is not making the best use of their own talents. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, something about the coldness and the clinicalness of those non-horrific scenes interacted with the horrific scenes in a particular way. See, I hadn't thought about that as involved as you have. My my mindset was, why is Ito doing this when it's like a story about a a pretty looking, um, um, I think, Austrian guy? Uh, And then once we get into the monster and, you know, it's Ito's forte. I really enjoyed it. So no, I had the exact same thought. I I, don't, I didn't have that 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 connection that the silence early on might have set up the monstrosity later on. But I, I see that as totally valid. That makes a lot of sense to me. 
Well, I mean, I wasn't sure how intentional it was, but I mean, that's something that shows up in some other Ito stories, but not in the ones that I've read to quite this extreme, because the story's quite long as well. And it does have just like a lot of silence. There's a lot of pages that don't have horror in this comic, which is, you know. It's very interesting as an adaptation because it's, in a lot of ways, it's very, well, it's a lot more faithful than most adaptations. Mm-hmm. Uh, for one yeah. thing, but Anna, in the, your introduction, you mentioned that it was originally published in three parts. I'm now like instantly curious where the divisions of those parts came. Oh, yeah. Because it didn't jump out at me while I was reading. Even though it's a pretty faithful adaptation, the pacing is very different, that we spend a lot more time on the introductory setup material and a lot less time on some of the later stuff. Uh, like the the father and wife are killed off panel. The feeling I had about it was that if we're going to say that it's a bad adaptation and I'm putting quotes around the word bad because I don't think it is bad. And I also think it's not useful to talk about adaptations as good or bad, but Mm. that it's a little bit too um, venerating of its source. It seems like it's very much producing a tribute of a beloved story, which is a little bit like the problem you run Mm. into with something like the Watchmen film, right? Where it's like a little bit too in love with its source and trying to reproduce it too exactly. And that can lead to a bad adaptation because one medium is very different from another medium and trying to do things too directly often doesn't, you know, it's not as effective as it might be if you, unless you were doing something where you're working with the sort of both strengths and limitations of the medium at hand, right? So I think mm-hmm. that's a way that I could criticize the Ito, but at the same time, when I was actually reading it, I found it fairly effective. I mean, even just like the coldness of Victor's reactions, there's not a lot of emotion in this story, mm-hmm. but that's quite affecting because that's so horrific because how are you going to get inside the mind of this person? I mean, it's so different from the sort of outpouring of romantic over the top emotion that we see both in the original Frankenstein story, but also in the Disney one. I mean, the Victor in the Disney one is just throwing his wild hair around and moaning and screaming and just like falling into this exaggerated romanticism, this Byronic, you know, Shelley-esque romanticism, right? That's very much, as Andrew was saying, a direct intertext here. Whereas the Victor in the Ito is just so cold and so clinical with that wonderful like Ito expression of the very haunted eyes, right? It's Mm -hmm. like everything is in the eyes. And I feel like it was very clear, too, that Ito had a particular sort of fascination of fixation on that detail from the original Frankenstein story about the eyes being watery, like the eyes of the creature being watery, because he puts a lot of emphasis on that in both the male creature and the female creature, like those watery Mm -hmm. eyes are really fixated upon. And I found that interesting. But yeah, I don't know. Like I said, I had mixed feelings about sort of that contrast of like the horror and the more direct adaptation elements in the Ito. But I could make an argument for it either way. I could make an argument that it was totally deliberate and effective or that it totally takes you out of the story and it should have focused on its strengths. I'm honestly 50-50. Both of these stories give a larger role to uh, the best friend character, uh, Clerval. What do you think about the ways that the they uh, 
approach him and uh, his relationship with Frankenstein or the Frankenstein equivalent. I, I think he's kind of important in Ito's version, coming back to what Anna was talking about. Um, the novel is all about Victor's interiority, right? Uh, he is a very emotional person uh, in, in Shelley's prose. He's, he's constantly thinking and emoting. Uh, where Ito's, as Anna mentioned, is very stoic. I, I think you need a human being to react to Victor's horror, uh, to sort of create that foil effect in order to um, give us some sense of his humanity, because otherwise I don't think the story is going to go very far, because how can he reflect upon Captain Walton's own journey when Walton's much more humanistic than he is, uh, unless we see somebody holding Victor accountable. Uh, in in some way for his literal transgressions of the laws of nature, so I, I feel like it was um fulfilling a pretty just just necessary function in the story. I don't think Clerval was an interesting character at all in Ito. He's very much a Horatio to me. He's just kind of there. Having another human being show up and react to what Victor's doing mm-hmm. that 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 gives you that a connection, and it connects specifically to Victor's past, which I think is really important as well. The idea that it's coming from his background, not just some random person that he's interacting with. But then having Clairval, as you said, Anna, kind of um, go along with what Victor is doing and be like, oh, okay, I'll help you chop that hand off. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think that extends the argument to a broader humanity. So it's not this idea Mm -hmm. that in Nito's story, Victor is just a sociopath and there's no commentary on humanity. It's just an individual, right? He's arguing that these are very human temptations uh, and that therefore someone like um, um, the boat captain should be Captain Walton should be very concerned uh, about the vulnerability to his spirit uh, as a result of this this drive uh, that that is the you know infection that both Victor and, and Walton have. Yeah, it's really interesting because the original is so much about how uh, Victor isolated himself in the pursuit of this and absolutely refuses time and time again to even mention the monster that it's this secret shame that he. Mm like keeps from everyone that Walton and his impulse to make friends with Victor, that's absolutely rejected by him. Clerval's presence definitely changes that, but I I like the way that you've talked about how it changes it to add a new dimension. I didn't know what to make of the character in the Disney one. I didn't clearly understand (laughs) his function either than to just be somebody who creates a love triangle and who we hate and root for Victor. Well, I think it makes me in that. Easy. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, like that. <laughs> uh, I think that in addition to uh, Duckenstein relying that on the fact that you're familiar with the original story, it also relies on the care, the familiarity with the characters. Yeah. That Gladstone's mm. rivalry with Donald is, and in the same way that Donald's relationship with his nephews is kind of assumed and our associations with Scrooge are kind of assumed. And maybe that's the excuse for how poorly the text treats Daisy Beth, but uh, that doesn't go very far. Yeah, I mean, I get what you're saying, Michael, and that was sort of... Again, that's going to be either the joy or the frustration of the Disney Frankenstein, depending on where you're coming at this from, because I'm not that well versed in the duck lore. I mean, I've consumed (laughs) my fair share of DuckTales growing up and stuff and obviously read some Donald Duck comics and Uncle Scrooge comics and all of those things. But I had a sense that that, I think it is Gladstone, but I hope we're not wrong. But um, I I think it is. It is, yes. Yeah. But like I, I had like kind of a very vague sense of that being a character from the Disney mythos, but did not remember it clearly and just kind of 
did what you do when you're sometimes reading <laughs> Marvel comics as a newbie and you assume this is part of the wider universe, but you're not totally sure about how it works yet. So you just kind of kind of put it aside and assume it makes sense. But that's like a lot to have to do in this story. The story is like demanding a lot from you because I absolutely agree <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> that you have to know the Frankenstein story because it's relying on you to be surprised by the twists and you wouldn't be if you didn't know the story and I didn't remember every single plot point about original Frankenstein. And I did actually look it up to inform my reading of this text, even though I've read Frankenstein many times, but you know, I've read a lot of books since then too. And yeah, I don't know. I don't know what my mileage was on it ultimately because of all that work, it kind of made me do. <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, the other thing that we haven't really talked about is the way that it changes him we've mentioned it a few times with the way that it changes Victor into an artist, right. And mm -hmm. calls the creation an animated creature. And I think there's a few places where it's even pushing the idea, like in addition to all the creativity stuff, there's also some, and I think this goes back again to our familiarity to the familiarity it requires a continual mention of fate that, uh, everyone tells, uh, Donald or, uh, duckenstein that he needs to embrace his fate yeah and there's a contrast there with the concept of luck and gladstone i don't think that part's very well drawn out but the idea i think when it comes to fate part of that is our knowledge of the story that the fate of these characters is to wind up in a pretty tragic place but Donald essentially defines his fate as something else. And I think we're supposed to take that as a good thing. Yeah, there's really just quickly, there's competing fates though, right? Is it the fate mm -hmm. of him as Donald Duck or is the fate of him as oh. Duckenstein? Yeah, absolutely. Because the fate of him as Donald would be that he survives. Yeah, I was just going to say there's there's a big inversion there because Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, um, first English work of science fiction, um, arguably the first work of science fiction, depending on who you talk to, but it often gets denied the title for reasons that are probably just sexism. But but one of the things it does that, that's kind of um, outside of most contemporary science fiction is it is technophobic, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, the, 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 it's a bad thing to play with the laws of nature and all that kind of thing. So when you have the Disney version say things like it's fate, just embrace your fate, uh, and the monster turns out great and is a friend to your nephews, <laughs> I kind of feel like that's a really major adaptation choice that we should be more critical of were it not for the fact that it is an intertext and part of the joy is the subversion of the expectation and the dramatic irony that, that it builds off of. It's hard because that technophobic aspect inter, you know, interacts with the gender aspects and sort of the reproductive fable aspect of the story too. So even mm -hmm. that, there's like multiple ways, many, many, many ways to read that, right? I mean, what I was most interested in, in terms of turning him into an artist was, I mean, that can be read back into the, the Shelley version as well, because you can, that's another way that you can read uh, the Shelley novel as in conversation with literary romanticism and her own relationship to being a writer and being a woman writer, which is a monstrous figure in its own right. So that act of creation is one of the layers of monstrousness of the text and its larger context. So there's all that going on too. And I wasn't sure whether to read that into this Disney choice, but what I had hesitancy about 
was how it was framing what imagination and creativity means within the context of a Disney space, right? Because it's glorifying mm-hmm. the power of imagination and all of these things that we expect from the Disney brand. And yet, I don't know, it's always worth being suspicious about those kind of things in that space. But I was wondering whether it was working on another level to have sort of a self-reflexive commentary on that conversation about fate too, because you're doing work for higher work with a brand mm-hmm. character and all of these things. So your creativity is always circumscribed. And obviously the creators of this comic know that and they're able to play with that. And one of the joys of Disney comics, the same way the joys of superhero comics are the ways that they can play with that. And they can't get completely outside of those structures, but they can tentatively subvert them from within and, you know, some of the Donald, some of the Uncle Scrooge comics that have gotten the most critical praise are able to do some of those things quite effectively. I don't think this comic does that as effectively as it could, but I was definitely interested, but also suspicious of some of those gestures, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think one of the terms that we use a lot of, or use a lot in the world, is just the idea of Disneyfication. Yeah. And this mm-hmm. is a literal Disneyfication, right? Yes. Uh, of Shelley's novel. And it, it has that audacity to make it a happy ending and to make the monster a good thing and all that kind of stuff well i mean making the monster making the monster a good thing is something that most uh, adaptations kind of come to eventually uh but you're but actually making it a happy ending i think this is literally the only adaptation i have read out of dozens at this point that quite go that far oh wow <laughs> the, the story is always a tragic one even if the monster becomes a more redeemed character by the end of it well it's impossible not to i mean part of my frustration with having these conversations about disney comes from teaching various disney texts and anytime i teach something disney i always get students submitting essays talking about what a creative genius walt disney mm-hmm. the man was and a little yeah, bit this... like Stan Lee is thought of within the Marvel universe. Like mm. it's just the brand has been built up so much that when I read a comic like this, that's all celebrating the power of Victor Von Duckenstein creating this entire universe of characters. I'm mm-hmm. like, Oh God, is this just like a mythologizing of Walt Disney, the man again, because that's a little bit disturbing. Yeah. I think, I think that reading is definitely like valid with what it sets up. Um, maybe just to be kind to the text <laughs> i'll um <laughs> throw out a moment of the subversion that i really did enjoy like, like when you introduced to huey dewey and louie my immediate reaction is i'm am i gonna have to read a story about huey dewey and louie getting snuffed because it's oh <laughs> and they're up in the tree and they're having fun and it was their idea and the childish part of my brain was like oh that was fun <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, again, I don't like, I did really enjoy the fuck it attitude of, sorry, we don't usually swear on the pod, the effort attitude of just being like, no, we're not going to be tragic. We're just going to put that ending and that meaning of the text aside and we're just going to be joyful and be a weird family. And I mean, you know, again, that's a lovable concept. Who doesn't want that? I don't want mm-hmm. everybody to die at the end of the story. I'm not that type of monster. I kind of am. I've said on this podcast before, <laughs> when did I tell giants that the kid had to die? I mean, I was with in terms of elements of the adaptation that we found interesting. I mean, what about the changes to the Bride of Frankenstein aspect of the Junji Ito text? Because that's interesting. Yeah, this is a much more elaborate look at that than most versions go. 
a lot of different aspects of it. I mean, so they have the head of the murdered housekeeper becomes the head of the monster. But I mean, also the fact that they actually complete the female monster and, you know, it's the male Frankenstein who's responsible for killing her, which is a big change from the original story. Yeah. If nothing else, I think that's meant to serve as kind of a, um, a morality test almost showing us that the monster is violent and um, destructive no matter what. Uh, you know what I mean? That, that it, it doesn't have the right to be with anybody. Whereas Shelley leaves that a little bit more open uh, and, you know, ambiguous, if nothing else. I love uh, Clerval's line uh, that like, maybe the monster didn't know it was Justine's head. <laughs> like, no, he quincid. forgot the person that he framed for murder. Yeah. And it's a month old at that point, too. So, yeah, I don't know. I just had some mixed feelings about it. Not mixed feelings. That's not the right word. But I think that there's more that we could say about the particular nature of the horror when it's the female monster. Right. There's a lot of focus on the female monster waking up. And, you know, Victor keeps repeating, you know, the bandages aren't so bad. It'll look better with the bandages off and stuff. And some of this is in conversation with, again, the ways that this story has been changed by the Universal Studios movies. I mean, Bride of Frankenstein, especially. But yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know where I'd want to kind of go with it. But I definitely was thinking about the particular horror of the female body. And when we see the female yeah. body laid out, she's got naked breasts as well, which is interesting because we don't see any other kind of sexuality aspects emphasized. You know, breasts aren't necessarily sexual. They're just part of the body, whatever. But it was a choice that was made. Well, I think when you sort of lump that into the idea of um, um, using the nanny's head once again, mm -hmm. um, like we're, we're talking about sexual trafficking essentially, right? Because that, that's mm -hmm. what that monster is for. So there's a much more overt misogyny to it um, that I, I don't like. Uh, just generally speaking, I, I would much prefer it was a random head. Like I realize it's not actually her. It's just like her skull. Um, but Still, there's something really uncomfortable with that, particularly with regard to a character who was previously visualized in the text. Um, and I don't know what exactly Ito was going for there, other than maybe like amping up the personal tension. But the sexual symbolism that connects to it, I, I find uncomfortable. I guess in most versions of the story, there's not a lot of roles for women in it. As I'm saying it out loud, it sounds uh, like a bad argument to me, but... Um, <laughs> This goes so far, so much further towards misogyny that it's almost bringing it out into the open. Mm. That like, we have this accident that killed four women. We have, that isn't in the original. Like it goes into a lot more detail about where Frankenstein got the bodies from. It brings a character that we're sympathetic towards back into the story to an extent. It. I think better conveys just how monstrous the men in this story are acting. Yeah, I mean, it's hard, right? Because it's a critique of those attitudes and behaviors, clearly, right? I mean, we're not supposed to think that Victor's doing good things, and we're not supposed to think the monster's doing good things. So, I mean, mm -hmm. but at the same time, I take our Andrew's argument that it's visualizing that misogyny yeah. so overtly there, and it's spectacularizing it in a way that to be honest, I didn't actually think about how problematic that was until you kind of mentioned it because I wasn't going the opposite way with it, but I was thinking about how interesting it is the way the female body works differently and how fragile it is. And this isn't necessarily like, an, oh. like a, like a feminist reading of it or anything, but 
I just was interested in the way that that body was treated differently. You know, the body just falls apart and disintegrates when the monster strangles it, which is interesting considering that the male Frankenstein's monster's body is so, you know, seemingly indestructible, right? But there is just that element of a female monster is more monstrous for various reasons. And in this particular story, that has to be considered bound up in reproduction. I mean, she's a presumably non-reproductive yeah. monster and that's part of it. And I don't know. I don't know. I don't really have a conclusion for it. I mean, this isn't a text that's going to give us easy conclusions for anything. I mean, Ito just leans into things that are monstrous for the sake of depicting things that are monstrous. And the evocative images are kind of the point. So mm -hmm. I wouldn't really want to make sort of a hard and fast argument either way, other than it is interesting and fascinating. And those of our listeners who have not seen it <laughs> should definitely see it to have an idea of what we're talking about. Well, it is interesting that Victor never draws the line, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. In this version, he, he never says no. I mean, he kind of does, but it, <laughs> realistically, he doesn't. The consequences that it makes both of them a little more monstrous, that the monster yeah. is a ki kills the... Uh, bride, but Frankenstein never steps back either the way that he does in the original. And, and that's kind of the moral victory because because in, in the book, I would argue that the idea that, that Victor does say no, the monster never says no. The monster can convince itself that anything it's doing is right. It, it's a lot about rationalization for me. Um, and that's, that's another reason why I kind of like the ending uh, in Shelley's original. Um, here, I think it's not really about the capacity of rationalization it's more about again a human urge that goes too far and the monster that it creates who's sad at the end so so i do think it's losing some of those layers of sophistication from shelley's novel yeah it's hard though to think of if the female monster did get brought to life in the original novel i mean i don't know that there's a way to write yourself out of the trap of how the male monster is supposed to react i mean i feel like the way you write yourself out of the trap is what you do in bride and frankenstein she rejects him and that seems yeah. like the obvious way to go with the story, but that's already been done. So I'm not sure where if I was writing it, I would go. Thankfully, I am not a novelist on the caliber of, <laughs> of Mary Shelley and don't have to deal with these questions, but still. Yeah. Well, it also, again, tells us about the happy ending that the Duckenstein version is going for, that the bride subject never even comes up. They just mm -hmm. skip that part of the story. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, sexuality is absent from this story, oh, yeah. which is expected from a Disney version of the story, yeah. but still notable in its absence. Yeah. And still something I, I think I said in my intro that like sexuality between Victor and the monster is a big element in Shelley's book. Uh, and it's not here in any well, form that I can see. A little of it gets transferred to the Clerval uh, Frankenstein relation. Yeah, I can but see But not that. to the same extent. In the Ito one, you mean? Yeah, in yeah. the Ito one. Yeah, 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 for sure. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of homoeroticism in the Ito one, I would argue. I mean, I'm sure there's a tradition of homoerotic Gladstone Donald Duck, but that's beyond, <laughs> our, I think, any of our scopes or knowledge. We talked a little bit about uh, how Duckenstein's, well, lead is portrayed as very dramatic, very exclaiming. And in that sense, I think it works really well to have Donald Duck in that role, uh, the character that yeah. is known for uh, losing his temper and just basically raging at all times. So in that line, uh, what other classic works should be adapted to comic form? 
and what cast of cartoon characters should take over the roles of these classic characters in the story. Michael gave us this question beforehand, so I did spend time thinking about it. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, of course, I came up with an X-Men example. And it's not totally out of left field because I did a Three Musketeers, an X-Men example, which, you know, Nightcrawler already wants to be a Three Musketeers. So, I mean, it's like (laughs) kind of obvious. And, you know, given that I'm talking about two adventure stories, so it's not completely. But anyway, I thought of a whole cast for... Three Musketeers starring X-Men characters, you know, choosing characters from Claremont era, 80s X-Men. But so here's what I came up with for for our listeners who are into such things. So Kitty Pride is obviously D'Artagnan. That's a given. Yeah. Uh, Nightcrawler's got to be Aramis. I have mixed feelings about the religious aspects of the character, but he's got to be Aramis. The sexy religious one. It fits. Uh, <laughs> Colossus is Porthos. He's kind of the the solid one with a heart of gold storm has got to be Athos, the one with deep and dark conflicts, but she's also the leader. Um, And I want Emma Frost in the Cardinal Richelieu role because the costumes are going to be good. I feel like it should more be Sebastian Stan leader of the Hellfire club, but I'm going to go with Emma because it's more fun. And Wolverine of course would be Milady de Winter. The, Former former lover of Athos, who is now a ruthless assassin and spy. And I think I'm going with Cyclops and Jean Grey as the king and queen of France. There's many other roles for many other X-Men characters, but that's 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 as far as I got. I was really proud of the Wolverine as Milady de Winter, though. I was like, where is he going to fit? He's got to be in it. And I was like, that is actually perfect. I love it so much. That's pretty amazing. I, I was not able to break out of the Disney line of thinking. And the one that I think more just entertained me than anything was a production of Gilgamesh starring Goofy and Bluto (laughs) as in (laughs) Kaidu. Just the idea of that, like, aw shucks, innocence, but also doing horrible things and learning what death is and (laughs) moving forward from there. I did not spend a huge amount of time thinking out the details of this, but just simply uh, Bunsen and Beaker from the Muppets in uh, Waiting for Godot. Ah, yeah, that's, I get to that. that's good. Yeah. Well, I mean, can I spin this back around to a question that relates to something we were talking about earlier, which is the appeal of this type of retelling and the appeal of these multi-layered retellings where we're retelling a story with iconic characters with iconic characters from another story. Why is that fun? Oh, it's like I, fan casting, right? Mm-hmm. It, I think it's, the, it's that creative juxtaposition. I think the ideal version of it is that it, review or it reveals a new interpretation of the story as well as a new look into the character but Mm -hmm. uh there is someone i follow on twitter who's doing an uh month of analyses on uh all of the tree simpsons treehouse of horror and uh what they noted was um calervo cinervo is that his calervo yes i know yeah calervo yeah calervo's doing it uh and he talks about the simpsific- the way that, especially the later seasons, just do a simpsification. That is, you just replace the characters with Simpson characters, and we're supposed to kind of take that as the joke. I think a good version of that goes further than that and mm-hmm. gives us a little more to respond to. 
But I mean, the inherent basic appeal, right, is the idea of all of these stories being connected, right? I mean, would you say that mm. that's part of it? Because it helps us think about the story that we like in a new way by comparing it to another story and sort of making some of those connections. Because how does it help us understand an X-Men character better to place them in the role of another character and seeing how they relate to that role, but also diverge from that role because that's something that we have going on in the Disney Frankenstein, right? Donald fits aspects of that mm -hmm. role or can be made to fit aspects of that role. But that dual fate question we come back to, right? Because the fate of Donald is not going to be tragic in that way. I mean, just the fact that he's a brand, he's always going to survive. Right. Mm -hmm. But isn't it kind of interesting that in, in the Donald duck Frankenstein story, the ending really isn't drawing from either Donald Duck or Frankenstein. Yeah. That's something I found fascinating about it. Well, yeah, as kind of the the negative interpretation that I think Anna is right in is that it becomes a Walt Disney retelling instead. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which definitely made me have feelings. But, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I was thinking a lot as I was thinking of that question, Michael, about, you know, recasting something with other characters and why that's appealing. And because I do find that endlessly appealing, but mm -hmm. I think it speaks maybe just to the appeal of genre fiction in general, right? Because even though Shelley's Frankenstein is quote unquote literature and not genre fiction, it's so bound up in genre at this point that I would almost place it within that category. But, you know, the joy that we take from genre fiction is the way that it uses the conventions we're familiar with and puts a slight twist on them, right? So anything where we're yeah. retelling a classic story we're familiar with, with different characters is going to do that. And it's going to make us think about how the story is told. It's going to make us think about our, our own relationship with the story. It's going to make us think about the relationship of one story to another story. And there is something sort of endlessly fascinating about that because it's inherently a story about stories, even when you're just replacing the characters and retelling the story. It's still a story about stories because seeing those characters visually, you know, if we're talking about visual adaptations, which we've been doing, seeing those stories, those characters visually in a different space and context is still a commentary, even if it's not taking it to that other level. Yeah. I think a lot of the appeal you're identifying, Anna, a lot of it comes from just like expanded consumption. It's something else you can do with the story that you've read. Mm -hmm, it's, mm -hmm. al it's almost like DLC or like um, the, the traditional now very tired superhero argument of, you know, who would win in a fight. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a way for you to draw on your understanding of these characters and, and mobilize it towards something fun. You know what I mean? Uh, just another way to interact with it. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Another way to interact with it is perfect because that's what so much of fandom is. You know, whether you're buying toys or reading the story or interacting with people online or writing fan fiction or making art or whatever you're doing, all of these things are another way to interact with the story and work through your own feelings about the story. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. There is always more to be said about uh, Frankenstein and the resulting monstrous prodigy, but we're going to draw the episode to a close here with our recommendations. Andrew, would you like to go first? Sure. I'm going to recommend um, the movie Ex Machina by Alex Garland with performances by Donald Gleason, Oscar Isaac, and Alicia Vikander. Um, it, it's using Prometheus symbolism very directly, which is, of course, a tie to Frankenstein. Uh, and it's very Frankenstein-esque, 
um, with a lot of cool contemporary commentary on artificial intelligence uh, as the, the the technology that empowers a sort of Frankenstein. Um, but its politics are also very compelling, and I would argue that the movie has a whole lot of layers, just like Shelley's original novel. I was struggling for a comic book based one, but then when Andrew made it clear we could do films, I was like, oh, well, I got to do a universal <laughs> monster movie one. So I am recommending House of Frankenstein from 1944 with it's got everybody. You got Karloff, you got Lon <laughs> Chaney Jr., you got John Carradine, you got other people. It's great. It's basically like a team up with like Dracula and Frankenstein's monster and the Wolfman and a mad scientist character. I would describe it as the Marvel Universe before the Marvel Universe, because I think that the Marvel Universe takes a lot of inspiration from the old Universal movies. Uh, There's nothing not to love about it. I mean, it's like even the poster of it, I'm looking at it now. It's like Frankenstein's monster, Wolfman, Dracula, Hunchback, Mad Doctor, together in one movie in the house of Frankenstein. It's great. (laughs) I there's there's no dull moments in this movie. I would recommend it to everybody. The only kind of horror I like is the goofy kind. Awesome. Uh, My recommendation is a similar kind of crossover thing. Uh, As I, as we mentioned before, I've been spending the month uh, reading Frankenstein related comics. So I'm drawing from those picks. Uh, First, an honorable mention, uh, because I've only read the first issue. I don't know if it stays at this kind of quality, uh, but I really enjoyed Doc Frankenstein by the Wachowski sisters with art by Steve Scrose. And uh, my chief recommendation is Ultra Sylvania by Brian Shermer and Jeremy Saliba, which basically has the plot of uh, what if Dracula and Frankenstein's monster just took over their own European countries in the, in the 1890s and, or 19th century and just spent the next hundred years feuding with each other. Uh, it, it's got some really fun pulpy details, like Dracula hires this English writer named Bram Stoker to write his autobiography, <laughs> uh, things like that. Awesome. That's it for this month. Please follow us on Twitter at 3PanelContrast for more Frankenstein goodness. And next month, we will be looking at a pair of James Bond-related comics.